This morning, we're continuing our sermon series, The Acts of the Apostles, as we work our way through the book of Acts. We'll be finishing up chapter 18 and actually continuing on this morning into the first 10 verses of chapter 19 today in a sermon entitled, The Journey of Every Believer. And as usual, we'll examine each verse in some depth as we go, but when you step back and look at the big picture of this portion of our text today, what you find is a portrait of uh, the ongoing journey of every believer as God intended for us to live, members of the church. And so we'll witness the Apostle Paul and his fellow workers working out a balance in their labor for the gospel as they continue on their journey uh, that I believe is a model for us to follow when it comes to expressing the gospel in our own lives. And it would be beneficial, I believe, for each of us this morning as we explore these verses together to ask ourselves, is this a fair representation of how I spend my time expressing the gospel to others through my life and through my relationships, or is my life as a disciple of Christ possibly out of balance? And I think it's a fair question for all of us to ask ourselves periodically. So let's pick up the story where we left off last week, and we'll begin reading today at chapter 18 of the book of Acts, um, on verse 18 of chapter 18. And just a little backstory. For those of you who may not have been here last week, Paul has been in Corinth for like a year and a half up to this point, which was the last major stop on his second missionary journey. And although early on in Corinth, he was under a lot of stress, he was experiencing uh, some significant emotional strain as we looked at that last week. He was very worried about his situation, having been opposed vehemently by the Jews yet again, and also lacking income and the provision that he needed to meet his daily needs. Paul was feeling quite a bit of uncertainty, which we've all probably experienced in our own lives, right, from time to time. But he still had the reassurance, of course, and the strength of the Holy Spirit that was prophesied to him supernaturally in a vision, and then later came tangibly through other people that Paul met there. Uh, also through his circumstances, Paul's needs were met, and he ends up staying there for this extended period of time, establishing a church in that city and witnessing to many in the synagogue with some success with both the Jews and the Gentiles alike. And during that time, many of Paul's needs were met through what became a lifelong relationship that he establishes with a Christian couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who become partners with him, both in the vocational sense, the working together, and in his spiritual work as well, as we'll see, as the story of the relationship continues to unfold and mature in this text today. So let's pick up the story in chapter 18, starting on verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Kekrei, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Okay, the, the many days longer uh, that it says Paul stayed in Corinth was probably beyond the year and a half, mentioned in, in verse 11 earlier. And he set sail for Syria, which is a reference to the church in Antioch, Syrian Antioch. So he's going back to that church. Also, as we saw last week, Paul had been living with uh, at least part of that time he was in Corinth, working closely with Aquila and Priscilla. And he was not only in business with them, since they were all leather workers and tent makers, but they were working together in the ministry as well. Paul later describes them as as my fellow workers in Christ Jesus in Romans 16.3. And during that period of time, over a year and a half of living and working in ministry together, 
Paul was continuing, continuing to disciple and teach and train Aquila and Priscilla. At least all signs point to that, as we'll see. Teaching them in the, in the Word of God. Training them as church leaders uh, as the story unfolds. And so, at the close of verse 18, we see Paul cut off his hair because he had completed a Nazarite vow. Jews would take a Nazarite vow voluntarily either to seek some kind of divine blessing uh, or if they were undertaking some major ministry or as a way of expressing thanks uh, to something great that God had done in their life. And when you look at Paul's life at this time period, it makes sense that he would, he would submit to a Nazarite vow because we saw how much he struggled early on in Corinth. Um, he's now leaving there, having completed his second great missionary work uh, after making many important key relationships, after establishing a church in that city. And so he had much to ask God for and much to be thankful for at the close of this chapter in his life and ministry. And so he takes this Nazarite vow, which meant that he would neither eat meat or drink wine. And actually, it wasn't just wine. You couldn't drink anything from the vine. So any kind of uh, grape juice place is falling apart. You couldn't drink any, any kind of grape juice. Um, you couldn't eat raisins, the skin of a grape, anything like that uh, that had to do with, uh, with the fruit of the vine. You couldn't have any contact with the dead for 30 days, as well as these other things. It was a 30-day vow. So even if, you, if one of your family members passed away, you couldn't be near the corpse while you were under a Naz- Nazarite vow. And then at the end of the 30 days, uh, he would make certain offerings in the temple, and then his hair would be cut off and actually burned on the altar as an offering to God. And just an interesting side note here. Paul was obviously living under the new covenant at this point, which we often equate with the passing of the Old Testament ceremonial laws, which were a part of the old covenant because they're no longer required in order to maintain righteous standing with God. But both here with the Nazarite vow and then later in verses 20 and 21, which we'll see in a moment, where Paul was asked to stay at the synagogue by the Jews in Ephesus so he could continue teaching them there. But he instead leaves hastily, uh, probably because he was trying to get back to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the major feasts of the Jews, more than likely either the Passover uh, or the Tabernacle or the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this is the same Paul who talks a lot about freedom from the law in Galatians chapter 5 and elsewhere. He starts out in Galatians 5 with, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's referring to the ceremonial law here. That's just the first verse. We, we don't have time to read the whole passage, but it's quite a statement, chapter 5 in Galatians, about freedom being found only in Christ and not in the law. But here in Acts, we see Paul taking a Nazarite vow and then rushing off from his ministry in Ephesus to participate in a ceremonial Jewish feast. So what gives? Why? Why the distinction? Mary Beth and I were talking about this the other day. For the follower of Christ, our convictions determine our actions. It's not the other way around. The truth of Scripture, the Word of God, is of course what defines for us what our actions are to be. But what determines what we actually do is our convictions. We can believe intellectually that the Bible is truth and that God is who He says He is. But if we have no conviction in our heart about that knowledge, our actions will not reflect that of a true believer. Our convictions determine our actions. It's not the other way around. We don't do something, obey some rule or obligation, and by that gain a love for Christ 
or some modicum of righteousness out of that. It's exactly the opposite. Out of our love for Christ and our desire to please Him, we fulfill obligation to Him. Our convictions determine our actions. And that isn't limited to Christians, by the way. That applies to everyone. But this is why we see people who claim to know Christ are good church people living some other way. Our convictions determine our actions. It's not about what we say we believe. It's about what we actually do with that, right? People act out their true convictions, whatever's dear to their hearts. And so when we talk about certain rules or rituals or religious traditions outside, I'm talking about the ordinances of the church being communion and baptism, and also those clear commands for the church like worship, giving, fellowship, teaching, and so on. Outside of the ordinances and commands to the church, how we choose to honor God after that is based on our convictions. And of course, I'm not talking about sin, Okay, I'm not saying that anything goes as long as you're not convicted about it. There's a, there's a difference between ceremonial law, which applied to the Hebrew people under the Old Covenant, and universal law, which applied to all of mankind and still does today, which deals with issues of sin. And that's another sermon really for another day. But what I'm saying is that non-sin issues that are largely cultural, uh, like whether or not you wear a tie to church, whether or not you say a particular type of prayer before you eat each meal. Although I would interject that we should always give thanks before each meal because Jesus modeled that for us all throughout Scripture. Before, every, before He ate, every time He gave thanks to God. We should model that as well. But, the, but a particular memorized prayer or how you decorate the building, the church building, right? Those are matters of conviction. If you're convicted as a, as a man about wearing a suit to church, or a dress if you're a woman, then you should wear a suit or a dress. Not because it's a sin if you don't, but because your desire is to honor God. And if that is an expression of honor to God for you, then you should do that. Uh, when, when I ordered this furniture for the sanctuary, the, the communion table in the pulpit, there's a guy in Ohio that makes this stuff by hand. And so I was dealing with him a lot on the phone for weeks. And he was designing the stuff and... He said to me, now what we typically do, he said, I make a lot of these pulpits for churches and when I, we build them like this and then we put the church logo on the front of the pulpit and it looks really cool and people love that. And I said, man, that sounds great. So he did a design on the computer and he sent it to me and it was awesome. It had Upcountry Church and the blue and green, our logo and everything. And it looked really cool. And I said, that's great. Let's do it. And he said, okay, I'm going to start on it today. And I went home and I lay down and I couldn't sleep that night. It was gnawing at me so bad because I, for me, the pulpit is a focal point in the sanctuary when, when the pastor's teaching and when we're studying the word together. And it's just a personal thing, but I became very convicted about promoting our church brand on the front of our pulpit rather than something that would represent Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so I couldn't get past it, couldn't get away from it. So the next morning I got up as early as I could get a hold of the guy and I called him and his name's Alex. And I said, Alex, look, and, and after having lots of conversations with him, I'm not sure Alex is a believer. And uh, I said, Alex, I'm really sorry. And I know this is going to sound stupid and I'm embarrassed and I'm sorry because I know you started the work, but I need to tell you something. I, I, can't, uh, I can't have the church logo on the front of the pulpit. And I wonder, would you be willing to just put a cross on there? And he said, yeah, I can do that. Why? 
And so I explained it to him. I said, that's just a personal thing. I have this conviction. I don't want to promote our church so much, at least in the sanctuary. I really want Jesus Christ to be the focus. And he literally said to me, well, you know, I deal with a lot of pastors. And he said, I think maybe you're the first one I've ever talked to that's actually a Christian. Now, I'm sure that's not true. Um, but you understand the impression that it had on him. In fact, I think God used that situation to allow me to witness to him after that, which I did. But that's not actually the point I want to make here. The point is, would it be wrong for another church to have a pulpit like this made and have their logo put on the front? No, not at all. I don't think so at all. I would never say to another pastor, you're wrong for doing that. But for me... Would it have been wrong to put our church logo on this pulpit? Absolutely. Because I had a strong conviction to honor Christ with the design of this pulpit. And so my convictions determined my actions. Likewise with Paul, who taught all about the freedoms that we have in Christ in Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 8 and certainly Romans chapter 14, the whole chapter. And again, we don't have time to read all that, but Paul knew that he must honor God. And for him, based on his own convictions, that meant continuing to observe some of the ceremonial laws, not out of legal obligation, but out of his love for Christ and a desire to honor him. So the moral of this little sermonette within the sermon is, if there are culturally based convictions that you have, whether from your upbringing in church or from your, your parents or a particular religious tradition, and it's meaningful to you to honor God by continuing that, then by all means, keep that tradition. But we should never impose that tradition on others if it is not a conviction of theirs. Okay, again, we're not dealing with sin issues here. And likewise, those who don't share your convictions should never invalidate your choice to honor God in that way. This is where mutual love and respect between members of the body becomes very evident and very necessary. And honestly, there are few things as beautiful to me than to see a church like ours, quite frankly, where there are people from many walks of life, many different backgrounds, many different upbringings, many different religious and non-religious traditions, all coming together every week to worship and fellowship together. And we, we haven't had any pretense in this church from day one, and it should always be that way. Okay? Let's continue then in our story. Uh, verse 19. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So in verse 18, we see Paul staying with them and likely in an ongoing process of discipling Aquila and Priscilla. And now he leaves them in Ephesus to work with the church there as he's been training and preparing them to do during their time in Corinth. But Paul himself goes to the synagogue to engage in more evangelistic work as he usually does. And we've already thoroughly covered the difference between evangelism and discipleship in the past few weeks, right? Evangelism is the process of making converts, which is one aspect of discipleship. But discipleship in its entirety is the ongoing process of training and teaching and mentoring those who've now come to a saving faith in Christ. So when we see Paul in the synagogue, that's generally an evangelistic effort. He's attempting to reason with, to convince unbelieving Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Conversely, when we see him working with the churches, that's the ongoing work of discipleship with believers. And then in verse 21, 
we see Paul leaving the work in Ephesus so he can get to Jerusalem in time to celebrate the feast as a way to honor God, which we just talked about, okay? Let's keep reading, verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Ferga, strengthening all of the, the disciples. So after Paul does more evangelism in Ephesus, he goes up to Jerusalem, and then he goes to the church at Antioch, and then he begins to visit the other churches in the region, strengthening, it says, the, the disciples, which means he's continuing the work of discipleship. All right? In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he writes, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That's discipleship. That's the work that Paul was doing during this time. Okay, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So this is the first time that we really get to see Aquila and Priscilla taking a lead role in the ministry as Paul has gone on by himself for now. And it's worth noting here that in verse 26, when Luke says that Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately, the word explained in that verse is the ancient Greek word exathento, which is the plural version of the verb ektethame, which means to explain or elaborate or expound. And the reason that's significant is because Luke, using the plural form of that verb, means that he's expressly communicating to the reader that both Priscilla and Aquila were teaching Apollos together. In fact, Priscilla may actually have taken a lead role in that because her name is listed first in that verse, which was generally an indication of significance in first century writing. So the point is, the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila was very much a cooperative effort. They were in ministry together in every sense of the word. And then they encountered this man named Apollos. Apollos was from Alexandria, which was a well-known center for intellectual studies and philosophy and academics in, in Egypt, on the coast of Egypt. In fact, there's a, a world-renowned library there. And generally speaking, the people from Alexandria were often highly educated and well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, as was Apollos. So here Aquila and Priscilla encounter him in the synagogue because they're probably going there to engage in evangelistic work as they've seen Paul do so many times over the years. And they find Apollos obviously very astute. He's a very effective communicator and teacher. And he's already there teaching about Jesus. And yet something was off. It wasn't uh, that he, what he was teaching was wrong. It was simply incomplete. He didn't know uh, he did know of the, the life and teachings of Jesus, certainly, but most likely wasn't aware of Jesus' death or resurrection, certainly not the, the uh, Holy Spirit outpouring at Pentecost that followed. And so what happens next is really a testament to the character of both Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos, for that matter. And it's also an, an excellent example of how we should deal with each other when corrections in ministry need to occur within the church. And this leads us to our first major point in our outline, which is that no believer is beyond the need for discipleship. 
Okay, here we see this highly educated, very talented order, very effectively communicating the teachings of Christ. And along comes this couple who, although they've received excellent training and instruction from Paul for over a year and a half, they still don't have the formal education or pedigree of a great teacher like Apollos. And yet they recognize a deficiency in his teaching. And so they don't stand up in front of the synagogue and denounce what he's teaching publicly. They don't jump on Facebook and Instagram and make a bunch of posts about Apollos, about how his theology was wrong and he wasn't teaching the entire gospel. No, they they take him aside in private and they disciple him in the more accurate way of the gospel. They, They teach him the whole counsel of God. When verse 26 says, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately, the phrase they took him together in that verse is a Greek verb, proslambano. It means they took him aside specifically in private. Okay, this was a private conversation. Aquila and Priscilla had no interest in drawing attention to themselves or in drawing negative attention to Apollos because they recognized that they were all on the same team. And just to be clear, this wasn't a situation where we're talking about a false teacher or some kind of heresy being taught. Okay, the protocol in Scripture for dealing with false teachers is very different than this. It's very decisive. It can be uh, very harsh and certainly lead to public rebuke. This was a case of two believers discipling another believer. And it was done on a relational level, in relationship and appropriately in private. Because Aquila and Priscilla not only understood the gospel in a more complete way than Apollos, but they also understood the need for unity among the body, among the believers. They knew that public division would only drive people away from the church and away from the gospel. Remember, Jesus said to his followers in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's a big deal. He didn't say if you have all the right arguments, if you win the fight on your Facebook thread, if you have more education, if you have more experience, if you're a well-known minister. No. He said the way that the rest of the world will know that you belong to me is because of your love for one another. Why why would that be so striking? Because the way that we're supposed to love each other in the church is uncommon to the world. It's breathtaking. It's confusing. It's altogether, it makes no sense to those in the world. If we're doing it right, they should look at us and say, okay, something's different there. That's the kind of love that we have or supposed to have for one another. And that is how the world knows that we belong to him. And Aquila and Priscilla understood that. They were, they were very careful and very humble in the manner in which they chose to disciple Apollos. And to Apollos' credit, he was humble enough to graciously receive the correction and instruction. He was obviously a more educated, more experienced speaker and debater. In fact, uh, the first century writers considered him to be the most effective speaker in early Christendom, more than anyone else. And yet here he listens and learns from Aquila and Priscilla, which really demonstrates the point in our outline that no believer is beyond the need for discipleship. No matter our education, our experience, our religious upbringing, we all need 
the ongoing process of discipleship in our lives. It's how we grow and mature as Christians. It's how we become more like Christ through discipleship, which is why our commission by Jesus himself was to make disciples. That's the mission of this church. It, it should be the mission of every believer, which we'll talk more about in a moment, but we should all be in the process of being discipled, no matter who we are, where we are on our walk with Jesus Christ. I hope I never stop learning and growing and maturing in Christ, but I know one thing for certain, that process doesn't happen on its own. We have to intentionally work toward that end, continually, really, throughout our lives. And the single greatest factor, I'm convinced, in any person that determines whether or not they continue learning in this life is whether or not they're teachable, whether or not they allow themselves to be taught by others. I have yet to ever hear someone say, well, I'm not teachable. I've never heard anyone say that about themselves. Because everyone believes that they're teachable, that they're open to learning. And yet I have met many people in my life who were not willing to be taught. They were not teachable. And in ministry circles, I can't tell you how many times I've heard comments from Christians, ministers that are negative towards seminary and, and Bible college and formal education in general. But honestly, uh, I'm generally leery of pastors who are not willing to go to Bible college or those who make derogatory comments about seminary or uneven, even unwilling to consult a, com a commentary when preparing their sermons as if they believe there's nothing of value that they can be taught in formal Bible school or, or grad school or anything useful learned by reading the research and these commentaries of those who've dedicated their entire lives to the study of one aspect of the scriptures. And beyond that, I hear some of those same believers make comments to the effect that, you know, these guys, the pastors and teachers uh, with all of the higher education think they know it all. When actually, I've most often found the opposite to be true. Most of the men and women that I've, that I've personally met and studied with in formal educational settings are there because they have a very strong desire to learn particularly those who, who've gone back to school later in life on their own dime. And I've been through a lot of college and Bible Institute training and seminary. And if I had the money and time, uh, I'd go back for more tomorrow. Because every single Bible school and Bible Institute and seminary course that I've uh, attended left me enriched and awestruck with the wonder and beauty and depth of God's Word and really a, a strong desire to want to learn more truth is Bible college just whets your appetite for more learning and more understanding. And of course, there are exceptions to most rules. And so please understand, I'm not talking about ministers that have no means or opportunity to go to Bible college. In fact, I've known people who've not been through a lot of formal education, who are very highly intelligent, amazingly wonderful learners, and they're a lot smarter than I am by far, actually. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is that typically those that I've personally encountered throughout my ministry who are disparaging of formal education, refuse to attend a Bible college or a seminary, even if they could go, are generally some of the most unteachable people that I've ever met. 
And those same ministers historically have bred some of the most dangerous and heretical ministries that lead people astray by teaching false doctrines or at best incomplete doctrines because they've never learned how to properly interpret scripture. They never, uh, they've never consulted the multitude of excellent commentaries and other historical literature in reference to the scriptures that are available today. They generally disregard any type of correction or instruction from others in their own life. And I'm just telling you, it's a very dangerous place to be when a minister thinks that he's smarter than everyone else. That's a dangerous place to be. When we begin to believe that we have nothing to learn from those who are often older and more experienced, well-studied, well-read, well-educated, formally or not, individuals, these people got places in our path throughout our life and, and this is where all of us really, including Pastor Rob, need to take a lesson from Apollos. No believer is beyond the need for discipleship. We all need to be continually taught and instructed in the way of God's Word. And of course, those who are not called to be teachers and pastors or ministers in the vocational sense, uh, that's why we attend Bible teaching churches where the Word is taught correctly not perfectly, correctly, because we're all far from perfect, with honesty and integrity, and we build on that with our own personal study, for which, again, there's a multitude of excellent materials available these days and accessible to just about everyone, okay? No believers beyond the need for discipleship. Let's move on. We'll keep reading in our story uh, at verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, this is referring to Apollos now, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So now we see Apollos who just recently allowed himself to be taught, allowed himself to be discipled by Aquila and Priscilla. He's now discipling others in Achaia and to great effect. Verse 28 says, For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So Apollos is not only discipling those who believe, he's also evangelizing the unbelieving Jews in Achaia as well. Okay, let's keep reading in chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said into John's baptism. And Paul said John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came to them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Okay, so you recall from chapter 16 that Paul was forbidden by the Holy Spirit at the time to minister in Asia. We don't know why. But now his ministry is extending throughout the entire Asian province. And here he encounters some disciples and he further instructs them, just as Priscilla and Aquila did with Apollos. He disciples these men in the way of Jesus. And as they allow themselves to be taught, they're filled with the Holy Spirit so powerfully that they begin to prophesy and speak in tongues. Okay, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And so again, we see Paul evangelizing in the synagogue in Ephesus for three months. Okay? And then we'll just finish up with the next two verses, 9 and 10. It says, But when some become, became stubborn and continued in unbelief, 
speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so we end up with Paul taking these disciples with him to the hall, or that could be translated as the school of Tyrannus, where he continues in discipleship and most likely evangelism as well for the next two years. Uh, there's a, a codex, uh, it's an, an ancient manuscript called the Codex Beza, which was written in the 5th century uh, in Greek and Latin. And it contains most of the four Gospels and Acts and a, a small portion of Third John. And it explains that in this time period, and these events were happening, that men would break from their work at, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., during the hottest part of the day, and that's when they would take time for leisure or hobbies or games. Some would rest during that time, but that's also when many people would go to the local lecture hall or school, such as the Hall of Tyrannus, and take part in great discussions and debate. This is how they would learn. It's how they went to school and worked at the same time. This is how Paul was able to make a living working at tent making during the regular hours with the rest of the population and then engage with them in discipleship and evangelism during their leisure time in this place where they would gather for these great discussions and they would let Paul teach them. And so Paul, he wasn't out on a street corner with a bullhorn shouting at people as they went about their business. He was very much working and ministering within the natural rhythms of the local culture. We should be doing the same thing today in our culture, which brings us to our final point in the sermon, and we'll stop with this one. Uh, no believer is beyond the responsibility of discipleship. Okay? We're all called to make disciples of Jesus Christ. When Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Obviously, those followers that were present that day couldn't possibly make disciples of all nations. This was a universal call to all believers. Furthermore, Paul wasn't present that day when Jesus gave this command. And we see him not only making disciples, but training others to do so as well. Okay? So just to take a really quick survey of Paul and the other disciples' activities through the text that we just read. Chapter 18. Verse 18, we see Paul discipling Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. Verses 19 through 21, Paul's evangelizing at the synagogue in Ephesus. Verses 22 and 23, Paul's discipling believers in the churches in Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening and teaching and building up and equipping them. Verses 24 through 26, we see Aquila and Priscilla discipling Apollos. Verse 27, we see Apollos discipling the church in Achaia. Verse 28, we see Apollos evangelizing the unbelieving Jews in Achaia. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, Paul is discipling the believers in Ephesus. Verse 8, Paul is again evangelizing at the synagogue. Verses 9 and 10, Paul is discipling and probably evangelizing at the hall or school of Tyrannus. You see a cycle here. This is how it's supposed to work. Disciples evangelizing and making new disciples who in turn evangelize and make new disciples and so on. And so Paul and these other disciples should be a great example for us. And, and it's easy for us to say, well, sure, but he was the Apostle Paul. That was his job. That was his vocation. But actually, that's not accurate. Making disciples and planting churches was not Paul's vocation. He was a small business owner. He made tents. 
and leather goods for a living. And he volunteered the rest of his time to the ministry. And obviously the church has helped him at times when he needed it, as we saw early on in Corinth when he had little to no work. But generally speaking, Paul was a volunteer lay minister or bivocational at best. And of course, we're not all gifted primarily to be teachers and preachers, but we're all called to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to use our time outside of our daily responsibilities, and even some during those responsibilities, to make disciples in a way that flows with the rhythms of our culture and people's daily lives. Nothing turns people off more than an unnatural intrusion into their lives. Have you ever been out somewhere and someone is going around witnessing and they come up to you in the middle of your day, you're trying to do something or you're, you're on a date with your honey and you're walking down the street and someone comes up and says, hey, is Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life? Have you ever given your life to him? They want to stop and talk to you about a track. And it's, it's off-putting to me and I'm a preacher. How do you think that makes people feel who aren't believers and members of the church? pretty weird. It's an odd, awkward situation to be in. But when we're in relationship with people, those who are are part of the church and those who are not a part of the church, within the natural flow of their lives as friends, in other words, we hang out with them when you normally hang out with people. We do things on the weekends and in the evenings outside of work. We develop real friendships then the opportunities for discipleship with believers and evangelism with unbelievers open up in a very natural context because we're already in relationship with them. And those conversations about the gospel will then naturally flow out of those times that we're together with our friends. This is the Great Commission. And it's our greatest calling. And none of us, as followers of Christ, are exempt from that calling. No believer is beyond the responsibility of discipleship. 